I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. No commercials, no foundation sponsors, 100% crowdfunded since 2010. If you want to support this kind of radio and get early access to the shows, please go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing on guests willing to think about the third rail issues that will get you defeated, if not expelled, from academia. We just covered several of the science-related issues in the first hour with Josh Middeldorf. And now let's move on to some third rail political issues with Ron Unz of Inns Review. Ron Unz is widely esteemed as possibly the most powerful representative media in English with the UnsReviewUNC.com. And he has a wonderful series of American Pravda articles considering the Serious, the conspiracy theories that are likely to be true, I guess is the way Michael Moore put it. And his latest is one of the most shocking and incendiary yet. If the Anti-Defamation League doesn't come after him now, I don't know if they ever will. I guess they have, but only in very small doses because they don't want to publicize him. Uh, they are working for me, uh, publicizing me actually more than they are Ron for some unknown reason. Well, I guess maybe we know the reason that they really don't want to publicize Ron. They could kind of get away with publicizing me a little bit, but Ron, no way. Anyway, Ron's new article, American Pravda, Israel and the Holocaust Hoax, is, well, the most, um, shall we say, uh, uh, revisionist uh, of all. He's putting the words Holocaust and hoax together. He hasn't hyphenated it as holo hoax like some people do, but that's still pretty darned incendiary. And he gets there by way of comparing the atrocity propaganda growing out of this Gaza genocide that followed the October 7th Al-Aqsa storm operation with some of the crazy propaganda uh, related to the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, many of us quickly saw through the 40 beheaded babies and the babies roasted in ovens that were proffered by Israeli propagandists after October 7th. And some of the Holocaust stories about lampshades and soap have been admitted false to be false by the mainstream Holocaust industry. Uh, however, what if a lot more than that were the product of fantasy yeah, sadomasochistic fantasy, uh, like we're seeing in Israel today. Well, uh, it's a, an interesting thesis and certainly a controversial one. So let's hear about it from Ron. Welcome, Ron Unz. How are you? Hey, great to be here. Yeah, always good to have you back. Uh, your American Pravda series is uh, is legendary. You're a legend in your own time. Uh, it's really top-notch material. And this latest entry is, I, I again, I think this is provocative enough that if this doesn't get the ADL in your case, I don't know what will. And, and you must be, you know, you must have both more um, time to read and courage than I have. I, I studied this issue to a certain extent, realized that, you know, the more I read about the Holocaust, the less I believed the official story. And if I kept it up and read a few dozen more books, I would become a Holocaust denier. And maybe, you know, since I'm covering all these other topics, I won't bother to do that. But you keep reading. And it seems that the more you read uh, like me, the less you believe the official narrative. Oh, sure, sure. Though, I mean, most of the material in this new article was simply um, basically excerpts and um, republication of article of segments of articles I'd published back in 2018 and 2019. So, I mean, over the years, I've probably published 
oh, at least eight or ten articles on this general idea. And, you know, most of them have come to very much the same conclusion. So, I mean, it's not really anything new I came up with, though, I mean, one interesting aspect, which was sort of the jumping point off point for this new article, was reading Tom Segev's book on the role of the Holocaust in Israeli society, which really was a bestseller, a widely and favorably reviewed bestseller published, I think, almost 30 years ago. And it was just very interesting you know, as he discussed the Holocaust in Israeli society, so many aspects of which are different than the way the Holocaust is presented in American society and really entered Israeli society much earlier in the 1950s. So, you know, in terms of reading that book and analyzing it and incorporating it into an overall framework, I mean, it certainly, you know, strengthened my conviction on, you know, the Holocaust being very unrealistic and almost certainly the result of wartime propaganda produced by the Allied powers in the Second World War. Right. And specifically, then, um, the aspects of the official narrative that you question, of course, are, are not the you know, rounding up of a great many Jews, among other groups, uh, and putting them in, in various camps, including work camps and such. But rather the notion of an official extermination program intending to kill all Jews uh, that were within reach, uh, the existence of gas chambers, and then uh, numbers in the range of six million, right? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, one of the aspects of the history, which has been almost entirely suppressed, but is very thoroughly documented and was even discussed in Segev's book, is that uh, the Israeli uh, is that the Zionists, in other words, the uh, pro-Israel group prior to the creation of the state of Israel, the Zionists and the Nazis had actually had a very important economic partnership during the 1930s. So, in other words, the Zionists and the Nazis really were quite close allies and friends during that period with, for example, the leading Nazi newspapers publishing reports, very favorable reports on the Zionist project in Israel, top Nazi leaders being invited as honored guests of the Zionists in Palestine, and reverse flow. In other words, Zionist leaders going to, to Germany to meet with important Nazi leaders. So, you know, in a sense, one reason I think that record was so strongly suppressed is that much of Israel's original base, political basis for establishment was the notion of the Jews being so horribly massacred and mistreated by the Nazis. And, you know, if people realize that the Zionists had actually been allies of the Nazis right prior to the outbreak of the Second World War, that would have disturbed that narrative considerably. And also, it really would have raised obvious questions. In other words, Segev really never raises any doubts in his own account. But it's just very strange when, for example, the first chapter of Segev's book discusses the important Nazi-Zionist alliance that stretched into the late 1930s. And then afterwards, suddenly, by the early 1940s, the official narrative is that the Nazis had suddenly decided to exterminate all the Jews in the world, which is a very strange transformation that's never really been properly. So, you know, it's just it, if people realize that the Nazis and the Zionists had actually been allies for most of the 1930s, 
they might raise, you know, very strong doubts about then the wartime propaganda that the Allies then suddenly created to vilify the Nazis afterwards, claiming that they planned to exterminate all the Jews in the world. Uh, another aspect of the story that really is very odd that Segev seems not aware of is that many of the top German generals, the Nazi generals at the top of the hierarchy in the Second World War, were actually half or quarter Jewish, or even in some cases probably full Jewish. So in other words, it's very strange when you recognize, and it, you know, it's thoroughly documented by legitimate mainstream scholarship, that dozens, dozens of the top Nazi generals in the Second World War had fully Jewish parents or grandparents. And, you know, that's a very strange thing for the Nazi regime to have if they were planning to exterminate all the Jews in the world. Uh, furthermore, 150,000 half or quarter German Jews served in the Nazi armies, in many cases as field officers. So, in other words, if you have 150,000 mostly officers who had Jewish parents or grandparents serving under Hitler, it really becomes very strange if, you know, at the same time that was happening, the Germans had developed this remarkable scheme to exterminate all the Jews in the world, including the parents and the grandparents of their own officer corps. So, you know, there are all these very bizarre things that, you know, are well known to mainstream scholars, but are very rarely put together or presented in such fashion. And once you put it together, it raises you know, enormous doubts about the story, which certainly are magnified when you then start looking into the tickle details of the supposed Holocaust. Right. The usual explanation for the Nazi Zionist cooperation, when you actually get some uh, sort of defender of orthodoxy to discuss it, is that the Germans shared an interest in getting the Jews out of their territories. That is, that there was an anti-Jewish uh, impetus, of course, in, in the Nazi party, and that uh, the Zionists wanted the Jews to leave Europe and come to Palestine, and the Nazis wanted to get the Jews out of Europe too. So they had that shared interest. No wonder they were good friends and partners. Um, but that desire to kind of uh, Europe of Jews still would persist and might be expressed differently uh, during the war. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that certainly was the basis of the Nazi-Zionist partnership. In other words, basically, they both had a shared interest in persuading Germany's one Jewish population, Jewish minority, to go somewhere else, including to Palestine. And I mean, that certainly was the reason for, you know, their close cooperation. And so, you know, again, I, what I'm simply saying is it's very strange when you have absolutely solidly established legitimate scholarship holding that the Nazis and Zionists had a very close and friendly business relationship stretching into the late 1930s. And then by the early 1940s, the Nazis had suddenly decided to exterminate all the Jews in the world. I mean, that you know, I'm not saying that's impossible, but it certainly is a very strange transformation in that way. Uh, there's another interesting point that some of the right-wing uh, Zionist groups actually regarded themselves as fascists and had modeled themselves after Mussolini. So they actually honored Hitler as being one of their great heroes, you know, during the 1930s. And, you know, they praised Hitler. They thought Hitler was doing exactly the right thing in Germany. They certainly cooperated with uh, the Nazis for that reason. In fact, in 1940 and in 1941, 
one of the small right-wing Zionist factions led by a future prime minister of Israel actually tried to join the Axis military alliance, the alliance led by Hitler and Mussolini as, you know, basically their military ally. And, you know, they promised to establish a a fascist or Nazi-like state in Palestine under the auspices of the Axis powers. So, you know, it's just very strange when you have, you know, a future prime minister of Israel trying to ally himself with Hitler and Mussolini in 1941 and the conventional narrative saying that by 1942, the Nazis had developed the scheme to exterminate all the Jews in the world. Again, I'm not saying it's totally impossible, but on the face of it, it certainly raises you know major questions of plausibility, which then feed into many others. Now, from my point of view, I mean that was simply one of many of the issues that raised you know tremendous suspicions in my mind when I encountered them. And again, you know these are arguments from very mainstream scholarship. You know the books you can buy on Amazon, books that have favorably been reviewed, and all the mainstream literature written by leading scholars. But another aspect of the story, which really is very odd, is that when you look at, for example, the Putins in American history books, and one thing I should say is that as I started investigating this issue back in 2018. I think the books that persuaded me most strongly that the conventional Holocaust narrative was probably false were actually the books written by mainstream Holocaust scholars that I read. I read probably about five or ten of those books. And just if you read them carefully, I'm talking about, you know, the people who are the leading figures in the official Holocaust movement. If you read their documents carefully – you come sometimes to very different conclusions than they want you to come. For example, one of the books, a couple of the books published were scathing towards American historians and American journalists for covering up the reality of the Holocaust. And if you read this book, you find during the period of the World War, it's very clear that almost no mainstream American journalists or scholars believe in the reality of the Holocaust. All of Mr. Sars journalists wartime propaganda, much like the anti-German wartime propaganda of the First World War. I mean, it may be forgotten now, but during the First World War, the British and some of the other Allied powers claimed that the Germans were raping Belgian nuns and eating Belgian children. So, you know, and also, for example, kind of like with Hamas, as we does. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it was just wartime propaganda. And they also, for example, claimed that the Germans in the First World War were rendering the corpses of soldiers into soap. In other words, they were inverting the Allies into, you, you, you know, in monsters' ways into soap and fats and possibly even digesting them and that sort of thing. And it was just a wartime propaganda, which later on was debunked and caused, you know, a tremendous revulsion against the Allied leadership for having invented those ridiculous stories. So during the period of the Second World War, the New York Times and most of our other leading newspapers seemed to regard all of these stories of the alleged Jewish Holocaust taking place in Europe as being just wartime propaganda. So, you know, for example, they would push an item saying that the Germans had electrocuted a million Jews in a very strange, convoluted way or injected a million Jews with poison in there to kill them. And they would run those stories in the New York Times and other publications, but they would be run as a few sentences down on page A26. And so stories like that, 
and were you know largely ignored by our historians and journalists, and that was then condemned by mainstream Holocaust scholars years afterwards in the books they wrote, you know, saying how outrageous it was that during the period the Holocaust was taking place, none of our journalists seemed to believe in the reality of it. And it's interesting that many of the stories that our journalists rejected were clearly wartime propaganda, like, you know, injecting a million Jews with poison in their hearts or using electrified floors to kill them or all these sort of ridiculous things. Everybody today admits were propaganda. There were also the stories of, for example, rendering Jewish bodies into soap and turning, for example, Jewish skins into human lampshades, which again, was promoted by all these Jewish activist groups and communist groups during the Second World War, but was treated as ridiculous wartime propaganda by most of America's mainstream journalists and scholars at the time. And it turns out it was wartime propaganda. In other words, no Holocaust scholars today admit those stories are true. I mean, they all admit it was just nonsense. It was propaganda at the time. So it was just interesting reading the books of these mainstream scholars where they admitted that basically nobody in America during the period of the Second World or very few respectable people believed these stories of the Holocaust. What was interesting then is that some of the books written by these mainstream Holocaust scholars then went on to say how shocking it was that even after the end of the war and for many years later, most of America's mainstream historians and journalists seem to still treat these stories as war propaganda. And I mean, there are examples of it which really are quite shocking. In other words, you have a situation where, as far as I can tell, during nearly the entire 1950s, and what I should say is obviously during the Nuremberg trials, which took place right after the end of the Second World War, all these stories were promoted as official American government accounts. In other words, you know, and a number of the Nazis were put on trial and some of them executed for having taken place in these, taken, you know, part in these horrific massacres and horrific, uh, you know, atrocities. But it's interesting, for example, that one of the key prosecutors at the Nuremberg trials was uh, the Russian prosecutor who'd been the main prosecutor of the Stalinist purge trials of the 1930s. In other words, those were the trials in which all the Jewish old Bolsheviks, who were enemies of Stalin, admitted to being Nazi spies and Nazi traitors, and all the executed. You know, the Trotskyites basically were accused of the most absurd sort of offenses. They all pleaded guilty, and basically all of them were executed. Classic and the key, trials. Exactly. And the key prosecutor who handled those convictions was then the key prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials and, you know, used probably much the same approach. And it's interesting that some of the stories presented at the Nuremberg trials involving shrunken heads and human lampshades, human skin lampshades, and human bars of soap, you know, are now admitted to be entirely false propaganda. So in other words, much of what the Nuremberg trials emphasized as factual evidence, you know, they showed, for example, some of the bars of soap commuted, committed, uh, com uh, created by human rendering are now admitted to be entirely fraudulent. And so, you know, it raises questions. In other words, if basically so much of what happened during the Nuremberg trials was fraudulent, it naturally raises suspicions about the other as well. And particularly the gas chambers. How, how did the gas chambers survive when, when the soap, the lampshades, the uh, electrocutions, the jabs to the heart, all that stuff has, has obviously been exposed, but the gas chambers, not so much. 
Yeah, exactly. What's interesting, actually, is that uh, some of the early stories of the gas chambers actually appeared in the German, in the uh, Nazi concentration camps on German soil, the ones that were liberated by the Allied and American forces. So, for example, originally, Dachau and some of those camps allegedly had gas chambers that had been used to exterminate the Jews. But now everybody admits that those gas chambers were fraudulent and were uh, were basically constructed after the war by the OSS and other Western forces, basically to use as a stage prop for the war crime trial. So in other words, some of the gas chambers are now admitted to be entirely fraudulent. And the gas chambers who remained in the record were the ones liberated, were the ones in the Nazi camps captured by the Soviets that the Allies had no access to. So in other words, it was basically all Soviet propaganda that was used to you know, produce the amounts, the elements of the war uh, atrocities that remained in place. And what's interesting is that a couple of years after the end of the war, so in other words, basically all of the original Nuremberg evidence uh, you know, that has remained in place basically came from the Soviets. But a couple of years after the end of the war, Stalin became very suspicious of the Zionists because Stalin had originally envisioned the state of Israel, which he helped to create, as being a pro-Soviet state in the Middle East that would basically be allied with the the Soviets and would balance out the uh, pro-Western Arab regimes in that part of the world. It turns out Israel then shifted more towards neutrality or support for America because of the very powerful and wealthy American Jewish population. And that made Stalin very, very suspicious of Israel and of Jews and Zionists. So uh, at that point, then Stalin basically turned a crank and all of the not, uh, all of the propaganda about the Holocaust and the extermination of the Jews ended in the Soviet Union. So in other words, for decades, for, in pretty much all the years after the end of the Second World War, even though all of the Holocaust propaganda had originally come from the Soviets, no one in the Soviet Union believed in the existence of the Holocaust. In other words, they only discovered the existence of the Holocaust after the Cold War ended and when there was a flood of Western media and Western propaganda and Western money into the Soviet Union and the Soviet heard of the Holocaust at that point. And the same thing was true of most of the Eastern European countries that were under the Soviet reign. And those were the countries actually where the, so- where the Holocaust had allegedly been committed but nobody in those countries had ever heard of the Holocaust in the early 1990s, you know, after the uh, after the uh, Iron Curtain broke down and the parts of Europe were reestablished. So it's just very odd when you discover that, for example, in the United States, virtually nobody in the mainstream believed in the Holocaust when it was allegedly taking place. And even though the Soviet propaganda was used to produce the Holocaust evidence for the Nuremberg war time trials, After a couple of years, the Soviets changed their position on the Holocaust, and nobody basically in the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc believed in the reality of the Holocaust for all of those years. In fact, they occasionally published Holocaust denial literature, since they were more closely aligned with the the Arabs at that point. That that would be a research topic, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, Because I'm sure all of this material has been suppressed to some extent. The current Russian government, of course, takes a pro-Holocaust orthodoxy line, um, perhaps for 
propagandistic reasons to to maintain its uh, its it itself as the good guy in World War II. But I imagine there's a lot of uh, that kind of Holocaust skeptical literature uh, in you know Russian sources and so on that would be interesting to to look at from the point of view of rogue Western scholars. Oh, certainly. And what's interesting also is that some of the leading Holocaust uh, deniers early on were actually communists or socialists. And, you know, they might have been to some extent influenced by the Soviet Union taking a very similar line on that. For example, uh, a man named Paul Rossier, who was a French uh, individual, I think he was a communist or maybe like a very left-wing socialist, who was actually imprisoned at Auschwitz with some of the other Nazi concentration camps. He was actually the earliest Holocaust denier because he came out and said, you know, it's ridiculous. I was at those camps and there were no gas chambers. There was no there was no extermination plan. There was nothing like that. And he published some of the earlier early books on that. And uh, there's another French individual whose name I forget, who was a communist in the 1970s or 1980s, I think he was a physicist. You're thinking of Roger Garaudy, who converted to Islam and became a best-selling author in places like Morocco, where I now live. I think a different man. Uh, the one I'm thinking of, I think, uh, was a physicist. For his son, of course. Uh, right. Uh, no, but he, uh, for his son, was more of a conservative. But the guy, man I'm thinking of, I can't remember his name offhand. I, I mean, again, his main issue was not Holocaust denial, but he was, I think, a, phys- a physicist. And he was also, I think, a communist. And he you know, ended up coming out in favor of Holocaust denial, I think, during the 1980s. And he got into legal trouble because at that time it was illegal. And I think he had to go into hiding for a while. Uh, I, unfortunately, I can't remember his name offhand. But, I mean, there were really – there was basically a strain of obviously individuals very much on the right wing, you know, pro-Nazi individuals who were Holocaust deniers. But there was also a strong strain of very left-wing communist individuals who were Holocaust deniers partly because they were imprisoned at the Nazi concentration camps and they saw nothing of what allegedly happened. But uh, the more interesting aspect as I started investigating the issue was that, uh, you know, after, for example, the Nuremberg trials were over and done with in 1946, for about the next 15 years, both in America and in Europe, there seems almost no record of any belief in the Holocaust. In other words, the impression I had reading the books of that period is that most of the mainstream scholars and journalists quietly recognized that the Holocaust propaganda had just been anti-German propaganda, very much like what had happened during the First World War, and just backed away from it. So, I mean, the most telling example of that, which really I think is a striking fact, was noted by uh, Forsan, you know, that uh, French Holocaust denier, who pointed out that, for example, in the, 19, uh, in the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s, three of the most important Allied leaders, Winston Churchill, Dwight Eisenhower, and Charles de Gaulle, published their books and memoirs on the Second World War, which totaled uh, a total over 7,000 pages of text discussing all aspects of the war. You know, the war that they'd been the leading figures in winning against the horrors of Nazi Germany. And you know, obviously, under those circumstances, the strongest possible justification the Allies would have had for waging that war, which killed so many tens of people around the world, would have been the horrors of Nazi Germany. And no example of those horrors would have been better than the supposed Holocaust, the extermination of six million innocent civilians by 
diabolical technological means, gas chambers or other, you know, scientific methods like that, you know, in just the most horrible sort of way. I mean, entirely innocent civilians. And those civilians comprised actually a large fraction of the entire civilian dead on the European continent. So, I mean, we're talking about certainly the most important single aspect of the Second World War, and certainly the most horrifying one, which mainstream Holocaust scholars have correctly said was clearly the greatest crime ever committed in the history of mankind, exterminating six million innocent civilians. And it's very odd is if you read the 7,000 and more pages of text by Churchill, Eisenhower, and de Gaulle, there's absolutely no mention of the Holocaust anywhere in there. I mean, no mention of gas chambers, no mention of millions of Jews being exterminated, no mention any of that. And so, you know, anybody reading the memoirs and histories of Eisenhower and Churchill and de Gaulle published during the 1950s would have never suspected that any Holocaust had even occurred, which is, I think, extraordinarily difficult. For anyone, if, if uh, the mainstream figures this out, do you think they will start having Antifa pull down the statues of uh, of those leaders? <laughs> well, I mean, they may ban their books from Amazon as being Holocaust denial. <laughs> I mean, you know, seriously. And this is interesting. For example, when you read the books by these mainstream Holocaust experts like Lipset or uh, Lucy Vidovich, they ferociousize many journalists and scholars in some cases being explicit Holocaust deniers, but in many more cases being implicit, implicit Holocaust deniers. In other words, individuals who never mentioned the Holocaust in any of their extensive historical writings. Like, like David Irving. Yeah, exactly. By that standard, it's very clear that Churchill, Eisenhower, and de Gaulle were implicit Holocaust deniers. And They're all like the most, David Irving. <laughs> and among the most extreme Holocaust deniers because it, it's ignored in 7,000 pages of books published just you know a decade after the Holocaust had supposedly occurred. Now, what's also interesting is I started reading through you know, these books and articles. I came across a totally forgotten book nowadays, but, you know, one at the time that really was fairly influential by uh, basically a uh, conservative, um, a conservative mainstream scholar named John Beatty. He'd basically been a professor of English, you know, well-regarded, established professor of English, who had actually been in, serving in the military reserves. And as the Second World War broke out, he was called in, you know, his uh, reserve status was activated and he ended up serving as a colonel in military intelligence during the Second World War. Now, uh, he actually had a very important role in that he was basically one of the individuals tasked with collating all American intelligence every 24-hour period and producing a briefing summary that was then distributed to the White House and all of our top political and military leaders on all the crucial information that had been uncovered by American intelligence during the previous day. So, you know, again, that's a very responsible, important sort of position. After the end of the Second World War, he then went back, you know, become a professor again at his university. And he just became very concerned about what he was seeing, including, for example, 
He was quite critical of American support for the Zionists in Israel and, you know, basically their expulsion of the Palestinians, the massacres they committed. And he said America was severely endangering its status in the Muslim world and the Arab world by its support for, you know, the criminal actions of the state of Israel. And he also felt, for example, that there was a tremendous threat of world communism. He was a very strong anti-communist. So he published a book in 1951 called Iron Curtain Over America, which described what he said was the growing stranglehold that communists and Jewish activist groups enjoyed over American media and the publishing industry. In other words, they basically controlled much of publishing and journalism in the United States and were using the truth of many important events away from the American people, including, for example, how many of our policies that supported Stalin and the communists during the Second World War, and also how we were supporting the state of Israel in its you know, very unjust actions towards the Palestinians of, of their country and towards some of the neighboring Arab countries. And, you know, he basically said, you know, these groups were preventing the American people from learning the truth of what was going on. And, you know, that basically constituted the Iron Curtain that was being dropped in American society, barring Americans from learning the reality of what was happening in the world. And then as a very minor aside in his book, in other words, something that he only spent a few paragraphs on, he, you know, criticized the Israelis for still promoting that ridiculous story about six million Jews having been exterminated by the Nazis, which is just wartime propaganda that nobody believed anymore. And, you know, he just ridicules for still playing it up as part of their, you know, propaganda, how Israel was facing a dire threat from the Arabs. Now, what's interesting, you know, again, his group was very strongly critical of organized Jewish control in the United States and of the communists and of leftists. He was a conservative. And so his book was ferociously attacked, incredibly strongly attacked in lobbying efforts and in public attacks by the ADL, by Jewish groups, by leftist groups, by liberal groups. I mean, it was really ferociously condemned. And uh, efforts were made to, for example, bar from bookstores, prevent people from being distributed. And it was only published by a very small press down in Texas. None of the New York houses obviously were willing to look at it. But what's interesting is as word of these efforts to suppress the book got around, a number of America's top generals, both serving and retired, came out in strong support of the book, saying it was a very important book. He was writing the truth of what happened both during the Second World War and afterwards, that America faced a dire threat from these organized Jewish activities and from uh, communist groups, and that you know the media basically had fallen under the control of these elements, and that every American should read these books. So you know we're talking about probably a dozen or two dozen top generals endorsing his book, even though his book explicitly ridiculed the Holocaust as being wartime propaganda. What's even more interesting is none of the Jewish or liberal groups who attacked his book, and they attacked his book on every other possible ground. They went through it with a fine-tooth comb and ridiculed his claims on all sorts of factual issues. And in some cases, for example, his factual claims were indeed probably mistaken, as later came out. For example, he was very concerned that a third world war might break out in the early 1950s, 
that, you know, the Korean War might escalate into a global war against China and Russia, you know, leading to the destruction. Well, that of would China. have been a legitimate concern. Oh, exactly. It was a legitimate concern. But, you know, again, I mean, it didn't happen. So you could certainly criticize him for having predicted things that didn't happen. I mean, many of his concerns were very legitimate ones. But whether they were right or wrong, they were ferociously attacked by all of the Jewish groups, including the ADL. But none of these Jewish groups criticized him for denying the Holocaust, for claiming that the Holocaust was ridiculous wartime propaganda that nobody still believed in. So, you know, again, if all the Jewish groups, and his book became a huge bestseller, it was the second best-selling conservative book of the 1950s. I mean, it went through 17 separate printings. So that was the Streisand effect. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it was partly because all of these generals ended up endorsing his book, saying how important it was, how all good America. Reads. So, you know, obviously it didn't get the sales of mainstream or liberal books, which, you know, were very dominant during the 1950s. But it was the second best selling conservative book of that decade. And it explicitly ridiculed the Holocaust as ridiculous wartime propaganda. It was ferociously attacked by the ADL. And all of these other Jewish groups on every other ground, none of them challenged his statements about the Holocaust. And I think the only reason that could happen is because nobody in America in the 1950s, no mainstream people in America in the 1950s seemed to believe in the Holocaust. In other words, they'd all sort of dismissed it as forgotten wartime propaganda at that point. Is is that true even of the ADL, which was attacking him? That, that's interesting. In other words, I've never gone back to check the records of the ADL, and I, I don't know if the records are online or available anywhere. But, I mean, given the fact that the ADL and others under its influence f- attacked his factual claims on all other grounds, it's very telling that they never challenged him on the Holocaust. In fact, if you read, for example, commentary or any of these Jewish publications, almost none of them mention anything about the Holocaust during the 1950s. And in fact, a very interesting book, another book that started me along these lines, which, you know, again, a very widely praised book by a mainstream Holocaust scholar, was written by Peter Novick. And uh, and it was basically uh, about the forgotten memory of the Holocaust, pointing out how very strange it was. And we're talking about a mainstream Holocaust scholar. He pointed out how strange it was that for the first 15 years after the occurrence of the Holocaust, there was virtually no discussion of the Holocaust in either mainstream sources or even in most Jewish sources. In fact, for example, how many Jews were interviewed about their views, important world events, including the Second World War, as late as the 1950s, the late 1950s, almost none of them mentioned the Holocaust. I mean, we're talking about... The greatest, supposedly the greatest massacre of Jews in the history of mankind, the greatest atrocity, the centerpiece of the Second World War. And virtually no Jewish participants or Jewish activists mentioned it during the 1950s. And certainly virtually no mainstream historians discussed it. And since then, they've sure been making up for lost time. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting also is that, for example, uh, the Holocaust revival really began with the Eichmann trial in 1960. Adolf Eichmann was kidnapped from Argentina and then tried and executed in Israel in a sort of show trial, which emphasized the Holocaust. And that's really what revived the Holocaust in the minds of most people. What's interesting is Eichmann had actually been the Nazi leader 
who was key liaison to the Zionists in the 30s. In other words, he was an honored guest of the Zionists in Palestine. He actually was considered very much of a philo-Semite. He actually learned, he studied Hebrew so that he could, you know, talk with his Zionist allies and everything like that. And, you know, he visited Palestine and everything like that. And the Israelis, you know, in the late 1950s then became very concerned that the truth, the hidden truth of the Nazi alliance of the 1930s might come out and cause them a tremendous amount of embarrassment and trouble, you know, with their Jewish supporters in the West and with the Western government, since, you know, they relied so heavily on, you know, the, uh, on the story of the Nazis that Israel was established, you know, as sort of a means of recompense. And, you know, if they'd been Nazi allies, if it came out that they'd been Nazi allies in the 1930s, that would have caused them a lot of smoke. And so it, it turns out an important Israeli political leader, the fat who had been the sort of uh, Jewish liaison, the Zionist liaison to the Nazis in the 1930s, the truth of his involvement started to come out because of some of his legal problems. And then he was assassinated. And Sega, you know, that mainstream uh, Israeli author in his book, strongly suspects that uh, that Israeli leader was assassinated by the Israeli government. The assassination was organized by the Israeli government to ensure that his mouth was shut and that the secret of the Nazi alliance was kept hidden. And so it's interesting that right after that, the Israelis then began their effort to track down Eichmann, who'd been the Nazi counterpart in the uh, Israeli, in the Zionist Nazi alliance, and brought him to Israel and then had him executed. So, you know, it seems suspicious. So, so, so they had won there. They both eliminated the eyewitness to their dealings with the Nazis, and they staged what amounted to a publicity stunt for the Holocaust. Exactly. exactly. And in fact, one point I raised is that, you know, uh, during the Eichmann trial, Eichmann was kept in a glass booth. And, you know, people comment on time how strange it was that he was kept in a glass, glass booth, allegedly to prevent any Israeli from shooting him, you know, from trying to assassinate him in the courtroom. But it seems to me another possibility is that, you know, it was arranged ahead of time. You know, the Israelis used harsh means to ensure what his testimony would be, and they would never reveal the deadly secret of the Nazi is. Zionist alliance. And so if he started to go off script, they could probably cut off the sound to his booth, you know, and prevent any of the reporters who were there from hearing, you know, his revelations of the uh, Nazi alliance with the Zionist leaders. So, I mean, you know, again, that's just speculation, but it just seems very suspicious that the first and only Nazi leader the Israelis tried to track down had been the liaison, the SS liaison to the Zionists in the 1930s. Now, you know, there are other very strange elements to the whole story, which, you know, again, I mean, all of these things are basically out there. They're all in mainstream conventional sources. Many of them, as I said, published in the books by leading Holocaust scholars. But it's a question of putting the pieces together. And another very odd element is that what really revived Holocaust scholarship, you know, the, the individual who launched scholarship, Holocaust scholarship was a, a professor named Raoul Hilberg who published his huge book, I think it was probably a thousand pages long, The Destruction of the European Jews in 1961. That was the first book, really, the first solid book of scholarship creating the field of what we know as Holocaust studies, which then, you know, inspired a lot of other books to be published later in the 1960s with Hollywood getting aboard during the 1970s. Now, Raoul Hindberg seems to have been a very sincere 
honest person. He basically was a child during the Second World War, and his family had been Austrian Jews, German Jews or maybe Austrian Jews, I think Austrian Jews, who emigrated to the West, and he arrived in New York City on the very day the war broke out the day in 1939 that the war broke out. And, you know, as he grew up, as he was a young teenager during the 1930, during the early 1940s, and he was reading in the Jewish newspapers, you know, these stories of Jewish lampshades, these stories of Jewish, uh, you know, soap, these stories of massive numbers, millions of Jews being massacred. He was just horrified that the Jewish leaders were doing so little in their efforts to, you know, stop this. So he was calling them, he was protesting, he was doing whatever he could. Nobody nudged him and said, hey, kid, it's just propaganda. Well, again, you know, probably a lot of the Jewish leaders believed in it at the time. In other words, they had the same reports and they probably believed in it just as much as he did. But, you know, they didn't believe that they could do, he, he didn't believe that they were doing enough of it. Again, that the Second World War ended, and he actually then became a military officer and he served in Europe. But then when he came back to the United States, he then went to college on the GI Bill. I, I think he ended up um, going to Hunter College, or w- one of the CUNY schools. I think it might have been Hunter College. And what really started him on a Holocaust scholarship career was that one of his professors in one of the political, political science classes he was taking was uh, giving a talk on, you know, uh, military relations, on history of military conquests and everything like that. And the professor declared that the most horrifying example of civilian atrocities inflicted by a government occupation, by military forces, were the Spanish massacres committed by Napoleon's forces during the Napoleonic Wars in basically the early 1800s. And what really shocked Raoul Hilbert, the professor giving those statements, was actually a man named Hans Rosenberg, who himself was a German Jewish refugee. So in other words, we had a German Jewish refugee scholar declaring that the most horrifying atrocities ever inflicted on any civilian population in modern times had occurred during the Napoleonic Wars in Spain. And, you know, Hilberg went up to him afterwards and said, how are you ignoring the Holocaust, which just occurred a couple of years ago? You were talking about six million Jews being exterminated. They were your own people. And the professor, the German Jewish scholar, tried to deflect the argument, saying, well, you know, we can't really look at, you know, things in the current events. You know, we have to sort of have a historical perspective on things. He basically just tried to deflect him away without sort of giving any of his reasoning. And that so outraged Hilbert, who believed that the massacre of his own people was forgotten not only by Gentile American scholars, but by German Jewish refugee historians, by everybody, that he ended up making that the centerpiece of his uh, scholarly career when he became a graduate student at at, um, Princeton later on, a few years later. And what's interesting is, again, his German Jewish refugee advisor tried to urge him to avoid that topic, saying it would get him into a lot of trouble, it might destroy his career, without explaining any sort of reasons behind it. And then when he tried to publish his doctoral dissertation, you know, with a lot of reluctance, his doctoral dissertation on the Holocaust was accepted. But then when he tried to publish it a book, it was rejected by every publishing company. With Hannah Arendt, 
the important, the very influential German Jewish refugee scholar being one of the people urging the publishing companies to publish it. And in fact, Yad Vashem, the key Holocaust center in Israel, also urged American publishing companies not to publish Hilbert's book, saying it would attract a lot of negative attention to the issue of the Holocaust, and you know it might cause a lot of very negative controversy. But but Hilbert went ahead and published it, and once he did, it obviously became very popular among American Jewish readers in the early 1960s, who suddenly rediscovered the Holocaust at that point. And that in turn laid the base for the creation of the Holocaust industry that soon followed. So, in other words, it's very interesting that you had all of these German Jewish refugee scholars who seemed to not believe in the reality of the Holocaust just a couple of years after it had actually happened. So, you know, in a situation where you have so much evidence that so few people believed in the Holocaust during the late 40s and throughout the 1950s, you really have to then start looking at the details of the Holocaust and deciding whether they're credible or not. And so, you know, in a sense, it, my, it, it doesn't make one wonder, though, Ron, why there was so little explicit Holocaust denial if nobody believed in it, but hardly anybody was explicitly contesting it, much less doing so in a scholarly fashion. Well, I mean, again, you had a few basically fringe elements. You had basically right wing elements who came out and ridiculed the Holocaust or denied it in that sort of way. But again, nobody took them very seriously. In other words, again, they were sort of just fringe writers. The key thing about it is, remember, America had staged the Nuremberg tribunals. We had publicly declared that the Holocaust had happened. We'd executed large numbers of German Nazi leaders on the grounds that they committed the Holocaust. President Truman, in his own speech, in one of his speeches, had declared the Germans had killed six million Jews. You know, so, I mean, basically, it initially declared as true. Biden said Hamas killed, roasted or whatever, you know, all those babies. So. Exactly. Now, that's actually an interesting analogy. Has there been any American government leader now who has explicitly declared that Biden was mistaken, that America did, that the Hamas people did not kill 40, did not behead 40 babies. In other words, I, I think what you've had is that the entire Western media and most of the Israeli media has just sort of shoved it under the carpet. In other words, they've stopped talking about it. They've stopped defending it. In many cases, they've admitted, well, there really wasn't much evidence for it. But I'm not aware, for example, any American government leader who's explicitly come out and said it was a false story. And so, you know, I think that's very much what happened in the aftermath of the Second World War. In other words, you had the President of the United States and a number of other top American leaders and prosecutors at Nuremberg, all declaring that the Nazis had been guilty of rendering Jews into soap, of human lampshades. I mean, top generals had done the same thing. I, I think Eisenhower had led a tour of Dachau showing, for example, the shrunken heads of the Nazi atrocities, showing the human lampshade skins, showing the bars of soap. And so, in other words, with so many top American leaders having explicitly declared that the Holocaust had happened in 1945 and 1946 and maybe even 1947, it, it was then difficult for American leaders to say, oh, well, they were all, those were all lies or, you know, our government had been fooled or something like that. And in fact, if you look at, for example, what happened with the German atrocities of the First World War, 
I don't think that they were ever officially denied by the British government, at least for a decade or 15 years. It was just basically scholars came out with books about a decade later saying that they weren't true, ridiculing them as propaganda. And after a while, nobody believed in them anymore. But I'm not sure whether the British government ever officially renounced them as being false propaganda. Uh, another interesting thing is there's a very interesting book that came out by a, a histor historian of science, Nicholas Callerstrom, about a decade ago, really one of yeah, the he, best. He's been on this show many times. Exactly, and, and exactly. That, yeah. And he published really one of the best recent books on the Holocaust, Breaking the Spell. One thing he did was to go through the British declassified British decrypts, the documents of German uh, you know, communications that were decrypted by the British. And they, they show absolutely no evidence of any Holocaust taking place in the death camps, in the alleged death camps. And, you know, basically the numbers of people who died in the death camps seem to be exactly what was recorded in the official records, which, for example, in Auschwitz, it looks like the number of Jews who died in Auschwitz was about 99% lower than the official figure. So, in other words, you know, you can certainly say that there was a Holocaust, but it was probably 99% lower than the official figure that everybody, you know, accepted for decades. So, you know, whether you still call it a Holocaust or not is, you know, probably a matter of opinion. And almost all the Jews who died in Auschwitz died of disease. They died of typhus. And in fact, the use of Zyklon B, the alleged, you know, instrument of the Holocaust, Zyklon B was used as an insecticide to kill the lice that were spreading typhus. So in other words, Zyklon B was used to save Jewish lives rather than take Jewish lives. And it's interesting, when you look at the records of shipments of Zyklon B to Auschwitz, Jewish deaths declined very rapidly once plentiful quantities of Zyklon had been brought to the camp because it was used to basically stamp out typhus, abuse from dying of the disease. So uh, the other interesting thing about uh, Kohlerstrom's book is Kohlerstrom actually found some declassified British documents where you had the British propaganda officials admitting that they'd been spreading dishonest propaganda during the wartime about Nazi gas chambers being used to kill Jews. In other words, basically, they admitted it was dishonest propaganda. And they said, well, you know, we should probably dishonest propaganda now because it'll end up being found out and nobody will trust us on anything else if we keep on talking about it. So in other words, there are basically British documents, declassified British documents, where the propaganda officials publicly officially admit in their memos to each other that they'd been spreading dishonest stories stories that they didn't believe of nazi gas chambers and Kallerstrom thinks that's where the that chambers thing came from was uh, that british uh, wartime propaganda and that the uh, zyklon b used for disinfection uh was then you know blown up into this mythical story of human gas chambers uh, by the british and then it sort of took on a life of its own that's exactly. I think that's the most plausible interpretation. In other words, you know, the British were basically beaming huge amounts of this wartime propaganda into the occupied countries of Europe, Germany, Poland. And it was then picked up by some of the local activists who then ran with it and basically promoted it, you know, in sometimes extreme fashion. Again, there were very many very bizarre stories coming out at the time. In other words, nobody today claims that the Nazis killed a million Jews by injecting each and every one of them in the heart with poison compound. Yet that was one of the stories that was being spread by these wartime activists. And it was even published, I think, in the New York Times. 
you know, again, there are other stories about electrified flooring used to kill Jews, all of these ridiculous stories that nobody believes anymore. So one of the few stories that ended up remaining in place were these gas chamber stories. And again, one reason it was different. Sorry, Rod, I think, I think we're going to have to pretty much leave it there because we are uh, at, the, at the end of the show. Oh, sure. But there's, there's always a lot more to talk about with this particular topic. And uh, it's too bad we, we didn't get a little bit more in the Hamas atrocity stories that are driving this genocide that's being prosecuted right now in The Hague. Um, but maybe we'll kind of talk about that in the not-too-distant future, hopefully yeah, after that genocide has ended. Well, thank you again, Ron. I keep up the fantastic work with your amazing American Project series. Well, thank you. All right, take care. That's Ron Nunes and Kevin Barrett of KevinBarrett.com. Thank you for listening. We miss every week.